The following is a pre-recorded program. 906 in News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here are in Studio B at WPTF for the Hour of Live and in Real Time Radio. And we have a very special guest tonight. Uh, he's been special every time he's been here. And he and I were talking before the program on the air, uh, on the telephone before the program came on the air, that uh, he's been with us uh, several times, and I think four or five times. And uh, I know about how old Larry Tice is because he and I went to graduate school at the same time. On the back of the book that we're going to be talking about tonight, which is entitled Circa 1903, North Carolina's Outer Banks at the Dawn of Flight. It says Larry Tice was the Wilbur and Orville Wright Distinguished Professor of History at East Carolina University from the year 2000 to 2015. Now, if you open the back page, you see there's almost an entire page that tells you things about the author and his accomplishments, and there are too many to read. I hope that doesn't insult you, Larry. All right. All right. That I don't read all of them is what I'm what, I, what I'm saying. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. But uh, you don't need to read any, actually. Well, I, 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 it's always good to give the, the pedigree of the person who's who's with us tonight. But um, I will say that he got his PhD from the University of North Carolina. If if somebody come up, came up to me and said, "Do you know Larry Tyson?" I would have said yes. Uh, he got his PhD at Chapel Hill, and for a time, in the, I think the '70s and '80s, he was the director of the Division of Archives and History. That's the one that I remember, but there are lots of other things that occur both in the state of North Carolina and the state of Pennsylvania. But he has a brand new book, Circa, C-I-R-C-A. Larry, that means about, doesn't it? Yep, yep, along about. About 1903, North Carolina's Outer Banks at the dawn of flight. And one of the things that you do at the beginning will be interesting because we can't cover everything in this book, so we're going to hit some high tops, and so people will have an idea. The book is was published, I believe, on like May 27th or 29th and is in your bookstores and is available from the University of North Carolina Press uh, and, and would be available at the usual places, your usual bookstores, and whether they be online or otherwise. And I commend it to you. I was telling him, I am old now, and my powers of concentration are slowly ebbing, but I didn't have any trouble keeping keeping in, in plugged into this book. So that's usually a good sign. But, uh, Larry, you've violated one of your—well, uh, I don't know if violated. That may be too strong. But one of the, the things that you write about that I think folks will, will find interesting is the definition of what that stuff out there is called. And you, on the front page, you have the Outer Banks— and I used to drive up behind cars that had that, you know, little sign or whatever it is, OBX. And OBX, for, you, yeah. for years, I didn't know what that meant. And then, of course, and I think we're probably the only state that is qualified to have outer banks. I mean, Massachusetts has got a cape and so have other states, but we've got our outer banks. And so so why don't we start there? Cause so that's sort of where okay. you start. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, if if uh, anybody who reads the preface will see almost immediately that the only time the term Outer Banks appears in the book is on the title page, uh, because uh, this book is about 1903, and in 1903, the term Outer Banks didn't exist, uh, nor, did, nor was the term Graveyard of the Atlantic. Uh, those were all creations of the 20th century, and uh, and they they were really marketing tools to try to get uh, people to 
go to, to North Carolina's Outer Banks uh, or North Carolina's Barrier Islands uh, for vacation. Uh, if you look at any literature about North Carolina up until the 1920s, the reference to the islands off the coast of North Carolina is North Carolina's Barrier Islands or, or North Carolina's Island Chain. And uh, there, there are uh, actually barrier islands uh, all up and down the coast of the of the United States, East Coast. Uh, but North Carolina has the distinction of its outer banks sticking out a lot further than any other uh, land body on the on the East Coast. And the 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 reason for that is because the two gigantic uh, global forces meet right at Cape Hatteras. One is the Gulf Stream, which pushes up, and the Labrador Stream, which pushes down. And they meet right at the coast of North Carolina, and through centuries and centuries and centuries and eons, uh, the Labrador Stream keeps pushing down on the top, and the Gulf Stream keeps pushing up on the bottom. And so Extending out from uh, uh, Cape Hatteras, you have this uh, long, long uh, shoal area called Diamond Shoals, which is the most dangerous part uh, of the coast for, for mariners. Uh, one of the things I try to explain in this book is that up until the 20th century, North Carolinians were always trying to find port to ship things in and out of North Carolina. And the only really effective port, and it, even it's problematic, uh, is the port of Wilmington uh, up until we started doing uh, huge dredging and modifications, which made Beaufort and uh, Moorhead City, of course, uh, uh, applicable. But... Uh, uh, when the lighthouses were built, and this is something else I talk about in the book, lighthouses were built in the 19th century, and they were beacons for mariners uh, passing by this dangerous coast of North Carolina. But those, those beacons became almost useless in the 20th century when we had uh, better ways of navigating uh, through radio or through electronics and also, we had steamships, not sailing ships, that could uh, twist and turn and go out into deep water. Uh, and so, something miraculous happened at the beginning of the 20th century. Those lighthouses became beacons for people inside the Barrier Islands. And that's something that I focus on a lot. So, so after the Civil War and, and in the early 20th century, the U.S. government, which understood what infrastructure was all about, our government today evidently has forgotten about the importance of infrastructure, but throughout the, the sound regions of North Carolina, there were river lights. I can't remember exactly how many were, but there were, but I think there were 28 or 30 river lights. And so... These lights were on all night, and so uh, it enabled people on the coast of North Carolina to work 24 hours a day. 
to ship things 24 hours a day for the first time. So at the entrance to every river and on on the top of every sand bank inside in the sounds, you had river lights. They were really navigation lights. Uh, and if you want to see what a river light looks like today, you can go to downtown Manio, and uh, they have uh, moved and restored one of the uh, uh, river lights, which was originally at the southern end of Roanoke Island, but now it's in uh, Shalabag Bay at Manio. But river lights like that, and actually much bigger ones than that, were were uh, scattered all over the the uh, sound regions of North Carolina, and uh, just like the lighthouses, they had occupants. Families lived in those river lights and maintained them uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, before getting more into the, the, the theory, uh, theories and interpretations of the book, I probably ought to say something about the main features of this book. Um, if that's all right, Tom. Uh, I'll tell you what, this is actually a very good place. You've just given us what the radio people would call a tease. And if uh, you want to find out uh, the story of what the features of this book are from our guest tonight, Larry Tice, uh, the book is Circa 1903, North Carolina's Outer Banks at the Dawn of Flight, tying it to the date that the Wright brothers uh, accomplished their, what is regarded by most as the First powered flight. I hope I said that right, Larry. I, there's a definitional problem, as we will, we will all know. You need to stay with us because we'll get to that right after this break. WPTF. Tom Kearney here with our special guest tonight, Larry Tice, uh, who is uh... Larry. Are you emeritus at East Carolina, or how, how should I describe you now? Uh, I'm uh, uh, still faculty of East okay. Carolina uh, as a research historian, and uh, but I spend most of my time these days writing, and I actually have three books that came out simultaneously, but I know we're here to talk about one, so we'll stick to that one. Right, right, and I know you've been involved in a number of projects to get history written, too, and to make sure that we don't forget. You were talking about the the scope and uh, uh, arrangement of this book, which is circa 1903, North Carolina's Outer Banks at the Dawn of Flight. And right. you were going to talk about the arrangement of the book and what you were up to. Yeah, well, well, the main features of the book, uh, this this book started coming together when I started researching the Wright Brothers. And, uh, and I did a previous book on hidden images in the Wright Brothers photographs. And, uh, uh, and I realized when I did that book, that in the background of the Wright Brothers photographs, there, there were images of many, many other things, uh, including landscapes. And, uh, and so I, I decided a long time ago that I was going to do a book someday that would not focus on the Wright Brothers' flight, but rather focus on the environment that they found. Uh, because when the Wright Brothers went to uh, North Carolina, they... They uh, had the perception uh, when they got to Elizabeth City and, and sailed uh, on a, a little boat across the Albemarle Sound that they had reached the end of the earth. And, in fact, Wilbur <laughs> said on his first trip in Elizabeth City, he asked around down on the waterfront, uh, uh, where is Kitty Hawk? And people in 
Elizabeth City said they'd never heard of the place. Well, that was BS uh, for sure, because everybody in Elizabeth City knew where Kitty Hawk was. And so I realized that these Wright brothers, they'd never seen an ocean before. They didn't have a clue. They'd never been, they, I don't know if they'd been on a boat before, at, at least in a large body of water. I, I, they had been to a pond in, uh, in Dayton. But anyway, these, these guys, young men who wanted to fly, didn't have a clue about the environment. And so when they got to Kitty Hawk, they started taking pictures. And they took pictures, as we know, of their flights. But also, one thing that I explore in this book is that when they arrived in 1900 on the coast, they took an, an enormous number of pictures of piles of sand. And I thought, well, you know, they didn't know how to take pictures either. They were just taking pictures of sand, and they meant to be taking pictures of something else. But as it turns out, the year before they arrived in 1900 was the biggest hurricane in North Carolina history. We think we've had some big hurricanes recently, but the San Scirocco hurricane of 1899 was the most damaging to the environment of any hurricane on record. And as a matter of fact, the San Scirocco hurricane, which uh, it went through Puerto Rico before it came to North Carolina, and that's how it got the name San Scirocco, because it destroyed San Scirocco in Puerto Rico and then came to North Carolina. But, but the, the, as a result of that hurricane, the U.S. Weather uh, Bureau decided to start tracking hurricanes and giving names to hurricanes. It wasn't until after San Scirocco, uh, which got its name just because it was so destructive in San Scirocco, that they started uh, naming hurricanes. So the Wright brothers took all these pictures of piles of sand, and what they were taking pictures of was the effect of that uh, hurricane. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go back and, and look at the at the environment through their pictures. And, and so that's what I did in, in this book. But along the way, I found lots of other pictures of interest. And in fact, uh, one of the featured photographers in this book is a guy who has a hard name to say and remember, but it was <laughs> Oriden Perny Cronk. What were his parents thinking you, you had to... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> what in the world? But as it turns out, I've, I've met his granddaughter who, who lives in Ohio, uh, and, uh, and Corydon and Perny were family names. Okay. So they put all the family names in front of Cronk, which was the surname. And, uh, and so in, in 1899, uh, Corydon Perny Cronk was the, the chief uh, of the Weather Bureau at, in uh, uh, Cape Henry, Virginia, which was the, the regional headquarters of the U.S. Weather Bureau. And after the San Scirocco hurricane, he went to North Carolina and he took an amazing number of incredible pictures, which I put almost all of his pictures. I think there's some 35 pictures in this book. And and they're, they're all published for the first time in this book. Some A few of them have been published previously. But I explain the way he went up and down the coast of North Carolina. And in fact, one of the features of this book is there is a map at the beginning of the book which shows all the ways the Wright brothers got to 
Kitty Hawk and Kill Devil Hills. They didn't always go the same way, and they used different kinds of boats and ferries and and uh, and things like that. So there's a map of how the Wright brothers got to Kitty Hawk and Kill Devil Hills. There's a map of of how uh, uh, Corydon Perny Cronk uh, traveled when he was showing the damage of that hurricane. Uh, I mean, buildings were destroyed uh, up and down the coast, uh, and the, the the landscape was changed. And you've got uh, one more guy you got to mention. Yeah, yeah, one other other guy. Who, I'm sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, <laughs> but he, but no, no, he's a great man for North Carolina history. And uh, yeah, I was going to mention that the Fred Old, uh, Frederick A. Old, was uh, uh, a, a real character. He created what is now the North Carolina Museum of History, and it was in, in Raleigh, the beautiful the, history museum. There's an elementary school in Raleigh on uh, Dixie Trail named for him. As a matter oh, of fact. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, well uh, uh, Olds, in addition to uh, founding this museum, he was an incredible writer. He wrote endlessly, and he wrote columns, uh, history columns, uh, and they were all published in the weirdest place you could ever imagine, which is why nobody's ever covered his history writing in the Charlotte Observer. <laughs> I mean, most people who... <laughs> Look for old. They look at the News and Observer. They look at, you know, uh, mm-hmm. papers in Eastern North Carolina. But his essays about traveling around North Carolina were in the Charlotte Observer. And so, in 1908, he did a complete tour of the coast of North Carolina. And he never once used the term Outer Banks, but he covered the entire Barrier Island. Uh, and his his trip was just unbelievable because he described not a forsaken land but he described a an area of North Carolina that was commercially successful people were making money right and left they were making money fishing and hunting and uh, shipping produce uh, because the, the the truth is that around 1900 North Carolina had the most efficient transportation system it has ever had, including today, because it had a combination of trains and ferries and boats of all different sizes, steamboats, sailboats, and believe it or not, the Wright brothers could leave Dayton, Ohio, and within 24 hours, they could be in Kitty Hawk, traveling by train and boat. Can we stop again right here? Sure. We need to take a break to hear the news. There'll be more of this right after the news. The following is a pre-recorded program. 9.33 at News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here on a Monday night. We'll get back to talking with Larry Tice about his book, Circa 1903, North Carolina's Outer Banks at the Dawn of Flight, a little bit of a history of... of, uh, the far eastern part of North Carolina. But we usually do a little promoing at this time, and I will say that Dr. Mike Walden will make his monthly visit tomorrow night uh, to give us a, a report on the state of the economy. Uh, Wednesday night is going to be our nostalgia night this week, and I'm thinking right now, I'm not committing to it, but that 
uh, I might ask you the question and ask you to talk about this question, and that is, what has disappeared that you wish had not disappeared? Well, you know, maybe it's a, a, a kind of food, it's a kind of dress, a kind of shoe, a kind of car, whatever. But what are, do you, are you nostalgic for the return of? But that's, that's something to think about. Thursday night, uh, Jerry Jester and Hank Degree will be here to talk about their Boy Scout leaders, and they're the people that I found years ago who can help me talk about the flag because Friday, lest you forget, is Flag Day, and so many people do forget that. So that will be on Thursday night. That will be the night before, so you can go out the next day and run your flag up the pole and salute it and all that kind of stuff. In the meantime, we can now can go back and talk to Larry Tice, who was celebrating the uh, the tour of North Carolina that one of North Carolina's early historians— Fred Oles took back in 1908. Uh, yes, uh, Fred Oles had a remarkable eye for everything that happened and uh, uh, everything that was happening on the on the Outer Banks. And uh, you know, for example, it, in uh, in 1908, uh, just uh, uh, which happened to be a year that the Wright brothers went back and flew again at Kitty Hawk and Kill Devil Hills, he actually landed on Roanoke Island the, the same day that uh, Wilbur and Orville were sitting over at uh, Kill Devil Hills flying their, their second-powered uh, airplane. And uh, I don't think that Olds actually met either Wilbur or Orville, but they stayed in the same hotel, uh, which was the Tranquil House Inn, uh, a facsimile of which still is is still in uh, Mandio today, but it's not the not the original. Uh, but but one of the things that Fred Olds noticed uh, and described in great detail was the unbelievable efficiency of how things operated on the on the uh, on the uh, uh, barrier islands, as he called them. And one thing, that I, a couple things I wanted to mention that proves the point is that. Uh, uh, Wilbur Norville Wright, when they were at Kill Devil Hills, they could write a letter and carry it over to the Kill Devil Hills life-saving station one morning, and that letter would land up not the next day, but the day after in Dayton, Ohio. So, I mean, we can't even match that today for the for the delivery of mail. the 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 U.S. postal system was unbelievable in delivering the mail. Uh, this was, of course, before email and stuff like that, and so people really depended on the efficiency of the mail. But the other remarkable thing that, uh, that is mentioned in passing in the Wright Brothers' story, but which fits right into my story, is that the Wright Brothers made aluminum shafts uh, for, their, for their 1903 uh, first-powered uh, airplane and aluminum was very popular at the time. It was lightweight, and they wanted to use as light a weight material as possible in their airplane. And the shafts broke, and so then they ordered a new set of aluminum shafts shipped to them from Dayton, and uh, and those broke as well. So Orville, on December third, left the camp at Kill Devil Hills, traveled to Dayton made new shafts out of steel and arrived back at Kill Devil Hills on the 11th, the 3rd to the 11th. They put those 
new steel shafts in there. And what happened six days later? They had their first powered-controlled flight. Can I? So the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish, and I want to ask you a question. Yeah, I just wanted to say the efficiency of of the commercial transportation and communication system uh, on the coast of North Carolina at that time is is hardly matched today at all. I was thinking that description you made of how long it would take them to get from Dayton to the, the Barrier Islands would be hard to be matched or any faster today. Um, ter- a terminology question. Uh, I'm throwing you a curveball, so it may be unfair. But we talk about Kill Devil Hills and we talk about Kitty Hawk. Now, Kill Devil Hills is a geographic feature, I think, isn't it? It's a pile of sand. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's where you can go uh, hang gliding and where they f- flew their plane. But Kitty Hawk is the is the... A corporate, uh, the entity. That's where the telegram about their site came from, I think, if I remember correctly. Well, the, it actually, the telegram came from the weather station at Kitty Hawk. At Kitty Hawk, okay. It's and not in the town of Kitty Hawk. Kitty Hawk was a little town around Kitty Hawk Bay, so it was on the sound side uh, of the island. It was not on the coast side. That's the place that the aircraft carrier is named for, though. Yes, yeah. yes, the, the, the Kitty Hawk. And, and Kitty Hawk was the first place the Wright brothers went when they went to the uh, North Carolina coast. And uh, uh, they found that uh, the, the winds were not as steady at Kitty Hawk as at Kill Devil Hills. And, and, uh, and so they moved to Kill Devil Hills, which uh, uh, Kill Devil Hill was the big couple that Kill Devil Hill was the tallest uh, uh, sand dune on the coast at that time. And uh, they could do a lot more at Kill Devil Hills than they could at, at Kitty Hawk. I liked your revelation for me. I, I guess it's a small thing that when when they had asked the weather service for a place where I think the wind f- would come from one direction at 20 miles an hour on the average or something like that, in order to come up with where, what the place that was described to them, they had to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica and to a Rand McNally atlas uh, to find out where these places were because that's they, they didn't know where they they were uh, they, oh. they had no idea right uh, exactly so we are on the coast and uh, they are uh, they are uh, uh, the the first telegram came in. I, I'm, I'm glad that, that you cleared that up because I, I think the the picture they took of the first flight was done by a tripwire wasn't it or rather than a, an individual no, it was done by an individual. Okay, okay. In fact, uh, there were, I, I should mention some of the other photographers in this book, but uh, the, uh, uh, the, the picture that of the first flight was taken by John T. Daniels, who was a lifesaver, and he'd never taken a picture before ever, and uh, that was his first picture ever taken, and they just told him, they said, you know, when the plane gets to, at the end of the of the ramp, and they used a ramp uh, to, to, to go down, uh, uh, they said that when it gets to the end of the ramp, take the picture. And, uh, and he took it exactly, I mean, it was a miracle that that photograph was taken. It was okay. a miracle that they flew. Well, I'm glad I asked about that. Then. Yes. 59 seconds, I believe, the first flight or something like that. Uh, 12 seconds. 12 seconds, okay. Uh, I... Before the end of the day, they, they had flown for 59 seconds. Okay, all right. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, so then uh, another photographer that I should mention, uh, who none of his pictures have been 
published previously, was James Hare. James Hare was a, the most famous photojournalist in the United States at the time. He had just traveled uh, with the Japanese troops to defeat Russia in, uh, 19, I think it was 1903. And, uh, uh, no, 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 it was uh, 1902 or 1903. And uh, in any case, he came back to New York, this famous uh, uh, photojournalist, one of the first photojournalists, actually, and he got an assignment to go take a picture of the Wright brothers in flight. You have to understand that that picture taken by the Wright brothers, we all know the Wright brothers did not publish that picture. It was totally unknown until 1908. And actually the first picture of a Wright brothers plane in flight that was published was taken by James Hare. Uh, so James Hare was so famous, and this is part of my detective instinct in this, he was such a great photojournalist, I figured out, well, he must have taken other pictures when he went down to get a picture of the Wright brothers. And sure enough, I found his collection of photographs at the University of Texas. I went down to the University of Texas, and sure enough, there were 35 photographs that he took while he was on the coast. And guess what he took pictures of? Like he went over to Fort Raleigh and took a picture of the monument at Fort Raleigh to uh, Raleigh's, uh, what what we now call the Lost Colony, but he, he didn't call it the Lost Colony. Uh, and, uh, and he also took pictures of uh, the Burnside headquarters on the on the, near Mantio, which was the headquarters of the, the Union General during the Civil War. Uh, he took uh, pictures of blacks living along around Mantio. And I should say that, that uh, the previous uh, uh, photographer I mentioned, Corydon Turney Cronk, was very interested in black schools and black churches. And so he took some of the most beautiful, beautiful photographs of, of blacks up and down the, 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 the coast of North Carolina. And these are in the book, and they're just striking, striking images of, of these, these uh, black kids. And you have to understand, they had just been segregated through by the Supreme Court, and so black schools were springing up all, all over the coast, all over eastern North Carolina, and, and so the uh, oh, and one other photographer who who I've used a lot in this book was was Herbert H. Bramley, H. H. Bramley, who was the founder of what is now the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Uh, and I, I should say that our institutions in Raleigh, the State Archives, uh, the uh, the Museum of Natural Sciences, the Museum of History, have tremendous bodies of photographs uh, that anybody can do research on. And then the Outer Banks History Center in Manio is just a, a tremendous treasure trove of uh, materials about the Outer Banks. And maybe I'll throw in one other thing that uh, is in this book that most people might not uh, know about. Can I stop you and make another tease out of this? 
Oh, okay. All oh, right. no, no, you can go ahead and do this one, and then we'll take the break after this one, okay? No, that's all right. I, I was just going to say that uh, most people don't know that the Wright brothers took their pictures with glass plate negative. Okay. And when they took the pictures on the coast, they had no idea whether a picture was taken at all until they got back to Dayton and, and developed their pictures. Uh, so uh, part of what I use in this book is their glass plate negatives but then to the James Hare uh, pictures are from uh, lantern slide. And when you come back, I'll explain what lantern slides are. Now, you did create a tease. Are you going to be a radio guy yet, Larry? Larry yeah. Tice. <laughs> we, we might as well have some fun. Larry Tice, author of Circa 1903. You can tell there's a lot of good stuff in this. North Carolina's Outer Banks and, and the Dawn of Flight will complete he will complete, I believe, the explanation of what he was talking about when we come back in the last quarter of the program. And also maybe talk about something else that was not as big a deal then as it has been since then, and that is the lost colony and the Croatans. We'll talk about that when we come back. It's 9.51. The Tom Kearney Show for this night, June 10th. And uh, we have as our special guest tonight, uh, Larry Tice, who um, has taught at uh, East Carolina University, among other places, and at one time was the director of the North Carolina Division of Archives and History, who has a new book called Circa 1903, North Carolina's Outer Banks and the Dawn of Flight. And if you've been listening, you can tell it's a very informative book, and I have actually learned a, a lot of things about someplace that I ought to have known more about. Larry, I can't remember where we were, but... Um, I, I mentioned lanterns. Lanterns, okay. Lantern uh, slides, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, this, this is an interesting thing. The, 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 and before we had uh, PowerPoint, before we had uh, slideshows, uh, the fur earliest form of slideshows was called lantern slides. And, uh, and they were, uh, images were placed on glass plates Glass plates were put in a, a uh, projector, which was illuminated by a candle, and would throw an image up on a, a screen or a wall. And so many of the items that I used in this book are lantern slides. And, the, and one thing about glass plate negatives and lantern slides that everybody should recognize, when you, when you use a digital camera, the digital camera is only as good as the number of, of uh, dots in the screen. But lantern slides and glass plate negatives are infinite. They, you can blow them up and blow them up and blow them up, and you can get details that you could never get in a digital image. So lantern slides are very important. But I, I don't want to dwell on that because, uh, uh, the, uh, Tom, you brought up another topic about uh, the lost colony, and I do want to mention that. The, the thesis of this book with regard to the lost colony, and I should say I am not among those people trying to locate the lost colony. Uh, I locate people who are attempting to locate lost colony. And, uh, and I haven't gotten that, that fever bug. However, one of the things I noticed, around the early 20th century is that everybody was in complete agreement that the lost colony had been found. 
and I mean North Carolina's greatest historians, all the politicians, all the pundits, everybody was in agreement. Even the people who wrote about uh, the the colonies, the colonization of, by Sir Walter Raleigh on the coast of North Carolina were in total agreement. The first public school history book, uh, which appeared in the, around 1915, said that the lost colony had been found, and the lost colony lived in Robson County, North Carolina, and that the the the, the people who lived in North Carolina, and in Robson County, North Carolina, were Croatan Indians, and it is just amazing. You can't find anybody in that period of time who disagreed. Now there were. Some interesting consequences or causes and consequences of this story. The General Assembly of North Carolina uh, passed laws recognizing the the Croatan Indians, now they're Lumbee Indians in North Carolina. Hello, hello. John, I think we are going to have to see if we can quickly redial Larry. And I will give you the the number off the air if you write it down and just do, dial it quickly because we don't have much time left. Uh, but uh, let's see if this is okay. There's nothing there. Uh, uh, we may not be able to to reach uh, Larry Tice. Uh, this is one of the things that happens with modern technology. And Larry was uh, actually in uh, I think Pennsylvania tonight in in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, where he, uh, I believe, has a a residence. Uh, so uh, we, we had uh, had a telephone problem, and we may not, in fact, have time to get him back on the air. John, we may be able to do a, a minute uh, uh, of uh, what we were doing. But anyway, tomorrow night I'll remind you, Dr. Mike Walden will be here to talk about the economy, uh, and uh, we will have an nostalgia night on Wednesday night, and then on um, Thursday night, uh, we will uh, uh, talk about the, the flag. Uh, it will be the day before Flag Day, but uh, uh, that's what we will have to do at that particular point. Are you having any luck, John? Okay. Okay, there, there's apparently some problem with the phones. It may have to do with weather situation or whatever. But in any event, those, uh, we've been talking tonight to Dr. Larry Tice. We'll see if we can get him on the phone after this, John, if if we can. You you. But uh, we'll we'll clear here in about 30 seconds. Uh, the book is Circa 1903, North Carolina's Outer Banks at the Dawn of Flight, published May 27th. Uh, it uh, is available at your bookstores, published by UNC Press, so you can get it from them or from any bookstore, and also from the usual sites. And by that, I mean Barnes and Noble and Amazon and that sort of thing. And I commend it to you. You can tell that it has it's a rich repository of information about North Carolina's barrier islands, as they were called then, what we would call the Outer Banks today, at the time that the Wright brothers were doing their first flights. That's our program for tonight. Our thanks to Dr. Larry Tice for being with us. We'll talk to you tomorrow night.